0: Our most gracious Father, thank you that we can be here today and we can come together to hear your word read and to hear your word preached and taught. And we pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that we would hear your word and be changed by it and transformed and conformed more and more to the image of Christ our Lord. And it is through him that we do pray. Amen. Well, as Father Randy pointed out earlier, it's Lent. We've entered into that season, and if you weren't sure about that before today, you might have been able to see it in your Facebook feeds with people talking about whether or not it's good to observe Lent. At least in my feed, that was happening a lot this week. But many people do legitimately ask, what exactly is Lent? Why do we celebrate this strange season of fasting and repentance isn't that too Roman Catholic isn't it something that they just started doing in the middle ages and besides that it's not even commanded in the Bible there's no examples of a required or a recommended fasting at a certain period of every year for the people of God Not even in any of the Levitical laws is there anything like that that's regularly expected. But yet, the church practices a 40-day fast. Practices a 40-day period before Easter of repentance and fasting. But why is that? What is this season? And that's what I want to briefly deal with here at the beginning before I dig into her text. But in talking about what Lent is about, I want to relate Lent to the temptations of Jesus to help us see that Lent is a reflection of what was happening to Jesus in this time in, his, in the wilderness and His temptations. That part of why we do Lent is that it is an imitation of Christ. And we're commanded to imitate Christ. We're commanded to mold our lives around his. But historically speaking, Lent is extremely ancient. It actually goes back, this 40-day period that we observe, goes all the way back to the early 4th century, to the 300s. And we know this because of two major things in history that happened then. One, there's a letter from the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, the great orthodox man of the fourth century who fought for a Trinitarian understanding of God throughout that century, throughout his, almost throughout his entire ordained ministry from being a deacon, priest all the way up to a bishop. He fought for the faith. But in the year 330, he wrote a letter to his congregations encouraging them, wanting them to observe a fast of 40 days prior to Easter. And we know from other letters in that time period and from him that this was a change for Alexandria. They had a different set of observances, but yet it was something that was occurring in other places within the church, this 40-day fast. And Athanasius, seeing the good of that, wanted to bring that into his congregations that he served, that he protected and guarded. And also, at the Council of Nicaea, in one of the... Canons, one of the laws that they laid down for the church, it said that there should be two local synods every year. One of them being prior to, literally, the 40 days. It doesn't lay down a law of 40 days before Easter, but it acknowledges that in many places in the church, the church was observing a practice of 40 days of fasting, a preparation before Easter. And so that's part of how why we do 40 days is that in the third, in the fourth century, in the 300s A.D., the church was adopting this practice and seeing the benefit and seeing the need for us to step back from our regular daily life into this liturgical season. But even prior to that, at the beginning of the near the beginning of the third century, of the 200s, the church was already practicing a short season, sometimes one day, sometimes three, oftentimes six days prior to Easter, which is what's become our Holy Week, a time of fasting for those about to be baptized and those about to be reconciled back into the church after grievous sin. So going all the way back 1,800 years in history is a practice of at least a short season that the church saw the benefit of expanding into a longer season for us. And that's the the brief history. This ancient practice is something that we've always, nearly always have observed in the church in some form or fashion. And we Anglicans continue with this. We see it as a gift, an opportunity for reflection in our lives. And like I said, it's primarily a season of repentance. It focuses on turning from those things that distract us and realigning our focus on God. Realigning our focus on what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to address what we do in Lent because there's always questions. I get questions about that where I work. I work at a Reformed seminary. Most of the people there are Presbyterians and Baptists. They're kind of weirded out by an Anglican guy who actually <laughs> observes liturgical practices. And so, and this isn't something I grew up with. We didn't really do anything with Lent growing up. Um, and so, I just want to step back and I just want to address quickly that fasting is not something that you have to do, it's not required. It's a good practice that the church encourages. In the past, the church did require certain things to be fasted from, but the church has moved away from that position. It recognizes we can't bind your conscience and demand you to fast from things, but we recommend it because of the spiritual benefits that accrue. Because of that, turning away from those things leads us to a deeper reflection on Christ. And not only do we fast, there's also a practice of prayer or spiritual disciplines where we take on something into our daily lives that we may be don't always do maybe an extended reflection on the scriptures or theological reading or deeper devotional readings that we add in place of the thing that we set aside for the season and there's also almsgiving a giving to the poor or to the church or to other ministries to help aid them in their mission in this world and those are all outward aspects the fasting the prayer the alms giving but there's an inward aspect of repentance that is absolutely needed Without that, those things are just pretty things that people can look at and praise us for, like Jesus mentions in Matthew 6. If we don't have the inward motivation, the inward desire to do these things in secret for the Lord, then they're of no good for us in the long run. And now you're probably wondering, where am I going with all of this, connecting it back to Jesus and his temptations in the, in the wilderness? And I'm connecting it like this. That the season of Lent, like Jesus' time in the wilderness and His desert temptation, is a response and a preparation for what God is calling us to do, just as His time in the desert was a response and a preparation for what God was calling Him to do. You see... We recognize Lent comes before Easter, but have you ever thought that Lent follows Epiphany, a season about Jesus' manifestation of his divine Messiahship? Throughout Epiphany, we often talk about his miracles and his teachings that just astounded the crowds, that astounded everyone. And that season culminates in a special Sunday called Transfiguration Sunday where we often step back and read In the Gospels of Jesus taking James and John and Peter up onto the mountain and His divine glory shining through His humanity for them to see and behold. We read that story often on Transfiguration Sunday. And then following up on that is suddenly we are flung into the season of repentance and fasting. That that moment that we recognize and see Jesus' full divinity shining through His humanity We step back like Isaiah did when he saw God on the throne. And we say, we are a people of unclean lips. We are a people who are sinners in need of repentance. We confess our sins and recognize the result of those sins is death. So it's a response to epiphany and a preparation for the celebration of Easter. Because in seeing our sin and confessing it, we see our need and are prepared to receive Christ anew and His resurrection. Receive Him through the cross of death so that we are fully renewed. And likewise, Jesus' temptations in the desert are a response to God's work, to His baptism, His receiving of the Spirit, and a preparation for what God is calling Him to do. Let's look at Our passage from Luke 4 again. Beginning in verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You see right there at the beginning, his entering into the wilderness is a response to the Spirit coming and dwelling on him and in him. I like how Mark puts it. It says he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. But Jesus' response isn't to resist, it's to go. It's to follow the leading of the Spirit. He responds by doing that. For 40 days, he is there temp- And it's ambiguous, being tempted by the devil. Was he tempted for the entirety of the 40 days? Or was it at the end of those 40 days he was tempted? I tend to think that it is at the end of those 40 days the devil came and began tempting him. And that's how Matthew phrases it. That at the end of the 40 days the devil came to him. But he fasted. He didn't eat. He brought himself to a place of great desperation, you could say. The longest I've gone without eating has probably been about 36 hours. 36 hours maybe a little bit longer and that was when I broke my ankle a year ago because they wouldn't let me eat because they didn't know when I was going to have surgery. So they took all my food away and I was ravenous. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to go for 40 full days without eating. And Luke simply puts it, he was hungry. Here we see a picture of Jesus own humanity that he can't live without food either he feels the pains of hunger himself and he is at you could say his weakest point physically in his life besides the last night of his life at gethsemane here at the very right before the beginning of his ministry he brings himself into utter and complete weakness through fasting and then the devil comes In verse 3, the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. He tempts him with the very thing he needs. Bread is not a bad thing. We know that. Bread is good. And so he comes to him and says, Why don't you turn these stones into bread, Jesus? You're the Son of God. God cares about you. He doesn't want you starving. Surely your father doesn't want that. But the timing of it is not a place where it's good. It's not the right time for Jesus to eat. And on top of that, to manifest His divine power in this moment would solely be doing it for His own good. It would be, for selfish reasons, a rebellious act of independence from the Father. Because the Father had sent Him out to fast. And his fasting was not quite finished for he was still in the wilderness to be tempted. And so for him to succumb to that temptation, which is a temptation because he's hungry. It truly is a temptation to him as a man that he needs food. But he steps forward and Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He turns away the temptation with simple words of scripture. He looks into the Scripture and sees man should not live by bread alone. And Matthew completes the quotation, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are to depend on the Word just as Jesus depends on the Word. Instead of acting independently of God the Father and His will, Jesus fully submits and depends on the Father and His Word to sustain Him. To bring him through this trial and this temptation. And for us, we undergo a temptation to act independently of God. Every day of our lives, every moment, we are tempted not to turn stones into bread, but to do the things that God has called us not to do, to be autonomous from the Father. And our way of resisting this temptation should be following in the footsteps of Jesus. Looking at the Word and turning the temptation aside with the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Saying our dependence is on the Father and on His Word which tells us His will. It reveals to us, opens our eyes to what we are called to do. Just as in this moment Jesus is being prepared for his future ministry of utter dependence on the Father, of continued dependence on the Father, we are called to always depend on the Father ourselves. And in his second temptation, the devil took him up, beginning in verse 5, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give authority. I will give all this authority and their glory has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't realize the full depth of this temptation. I didn't realize that Jesus desired the nations. He wanted the kingdoms of the world as his own. That's what he was sent to do. He was sent to redeem this world And bring all the world back under the kingship of God the Father and Jesus the Son. I always thought, well, yeah, who wouldn't want to be king of the world? But I never realized that that was a truly deep, inward, to the core of who Jesus is and his ministry, desire of his to rule the nations. Hence the depth of this temptation. Hence the bitingness of how Satan then turns and says, If you will then worship me, it will all be yours. Here Jesus is tempted to step away from the path that the Father has set before him. He's tempted to lay hold of the crown, to lay hold of the crown of being the sovereign of the world without enduring the suffering of the cross, which was the path the Father had laid before him. He could have easily bowed down to Satan and hoped to receive the nations of the world, though the reality is Satan couldn't fulfill that promise. He's never been able to fulfill that promise because ultimately the nations have always been God's, they have always been His. But the nations are in rebellion. And you can't stop a rebellion with another rebellion. The rebellion of the world could not be quenched and put aside and redeemed by Jesus rebelling against the Father. Jesus' response, again, simple words of Scripture. He says, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. To lay hold of the nations at this moment in time for Jesus would be to abandon the right and true worship of the Father. To turn away from the God who has sustained him, the God who sent him into this world to die upon the cross, to take upon himself our sins, our pains, our sufferings, to suffer for us. That is the path to winning the nations that the Father has laid before Jesus. He isn't to seek the glory on His own. He is to submit to the Father's way again. A preparation that He responds properly to. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It's a temptation for us to seek glory for ourselves, to pursue all these great and wonderful things in this world. To build ourselves up. But often, in our pursuit of those things, we turn away from the Lord. We turn away from the Father to worship ourselves. To worship the very things we're pursuing. As the psalmist so often says, you become what you worship. Because at the end, if we pursue all these things, this glory, which is nothing at the end of the day, we will become nothing at the end of the day. We will lose out on that salvation that Christ brings to us, we will lose out on the joy of fellowship with the Father. Will be just like the dumb idols made of wood that the Israelites worshipped, which rot and go away at the end of time. Before the end of time, will be like the money that so many of us in the past at times have pursued, that so many in our country pursue today, which in the flick of a finger, in the snapping of a finger vanishes with the stock market we'll vanish and lose out on the beautiful gifts that the Father has in store for us when Christ returns and so we have to turn our eyes back to the Father and Lent gives us that opportunity to step back and to return to a fuller worship of the Father. And then Jesus' third and final temptation while in the wilderness. In verse 9, it says, And Satan took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Satan questions Jesus' sonship. Just prior to that, 40 days before that, the Spirit had descended on Jesus and the words of the Father, were, you are my beloved Son, and who I am well pleased. And Satan looks at Jesus and says, if you're the Son of God, won't He protect you? Throw yourself off the temple. Because after all, the Psalms say this. Satan tries to use the Word of God against Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91, which is often seen as a messianic psalm, as a psalm that speaks of how God will care for His Messiah. It says that God will command His angels to take care of Him, to guard the Messiah, that they'll bear up the Messiah so that He wouldn't even strike His foot on a stone. The problem is This isn't what God has called Jesus to do. He's not called Jesus to throw himself off the temple. That isn't the path set before Jesus. The path he set before Jesus was being in the wilderness for 40 days in preparation. He set Jesus on a path toward these temptations to walk through them. And through that to be set on a path toward the cross more and more. To lead him all the way to a death. And through that death, to bring him to resurrection. That's the path that the Father is leading his beloved son. And for Jesus to throw himself off the temple is to pursue a path of the Father demonstrating his love in a way that he's not supposed to. And Jesus sums it up in verse 12. And answers Satan and says, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To throw himself off the temple would be testing God's love. It would be Jesus saying, If you really love me, Father, you'll protect me. And I think, for me, this passage relates the most. It's so easy to walk into these situations to walk into different situations saying, God, you're going to get me through this, right? With an attitude of, this will prove that God does care about me. This will demonstrate God's love for me and I can finally trust Him fully. So in fact, this temptation isn't just a questioning of God's will. It may look like an act of faith, but it's actually an act of distrust of the father to not believe what the father has already said to him that he is beloved and likewise when we walk into those situations where we are testing god's love they're not great it's not a great act of faith it's actually a great act of mistrust of not believing the promises that god has placed on us and given to us in our lives And so Jesus rightly answers the devil and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God is not to be tested. We are to rest and follow His will and follow where His Spirit leads us. But we're not to run headlong into danger, headlong into places where He has not called us to be. We're not to pursue those things that Aren't within his will. As if we could prove any better his love for us than what his promises have given us. And the passage concludes And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We're reminded here that though the devil left at this point, though these temptations had ended, the devil would return again. He would return at an opportune time, at another time when Jesus was weak. And there are different places throughout his life where temptation comes. All the way up to the cross, he's being tempted by the devil. Through the people around him, when he's upon the cross, they say, if you're the son of David, save yourself. Come down from the cross and we'll... With the insinuation of, then we'll follow you. Leave the cross behind, Jesus. And that is the words of Satan coming through the people, the crowds around him, to tempt him, to abandon, at that point, in the very pinnacle of his work, to abandon the path the Father had laid before him. And the glorious and beautiful thing about these temptations and about all of Jesus' life is he's stepping back and redoing what's been broken in the world. In this passage, there are hints of the Israel's time in the wilderness. From the, just the very fact that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And in those 40 years, Israel rebelled and rejected the will of the Father. They constantly griped and complained about the conditions the Father had them in. And yet, Jesus doesn't. He submits He rests and trusts the Father. But even more so, in the fall, Adam said yes to Satan's temptation. He turned away from trusting the Father's word to trusting what Satan said, to believing Satan over the Father. And here in this passage we see something beautiful, something I never even thought about until I was in seminary. And it warms my heart, which is important on a day like this in here, and brings so much joy to think about this aspect that Jesus said no. He is the only man in history to say no to Satan. To say no and continue saying no. And without that, there is no salvation. Without Him responding to the Father saying, you are my beloved Son, without that response of going into the wilderness and saying no to Satan in those temptations, he could not be the one who died upon the cross. He could not be the one who redeems us from our sins. Because in that saying no, he is the second Adam who does what the first Adam failed to do. He rejects Satan and his ways for us. Adam represented all of mankind and he fell from the righteousness and the glory he had in the Father and his creation. And Jesus steps up to be the second Adam and walks into the wilderness with everything going against him. Adam had all the food in the garden. There was no reason for Adam to even look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and think about it like that. If he was hungry, he could have gone to any tree to receive sustenance. Jesus in the desert has fasted for 40 days physically he is weak and hungry for he is a mere he is a man like us he has to have food ultimately his body is made for food to receive food to receive sustenance and yet he still says no everything against him and he stands up to satan and says no to undo what adam did in the beginning And so Jesus responds and is prepared for His ministry. Responding to the words and the promise and the truth of God the Father, He enters into the desert, into the wilderness, to be there in fasting. That He would be prepared to accomplish the work of being the second Adam. Of rejecting Satan for us. And thinking about that we come back to lent lent isn't a season of proving that god loves us or a season of proving how much we love god it's easy to get wrapped up in our fasting or our disciplines or our alms giving and say look how much i love jesus i'm giving up chocolate i'm giving up coffee It's not about the giving up of little things. Lent is about pointing our eyes to Jesus, to responding to His divine Messiahship and preparing our hearts to receive that work on the cross in His resurrection without which there is no redemption. In our fasting, it shows us our need for Dependence. If we're fasting from food then we feel our own hunger and feel the need that God has to sustain us until it is time for us to eat again. And so I encourage fasting, some type of fasting something to set aside something that can be a distraction but don't do like I've done in the past and obsess over that thing. One year I gave up most types of food and ate rice and vegetables for the season of Lent, and I was miserable and missed the point, the joy that can come out of a sacrifice for God, a joy of drawing near to the Father. I missed that that season because I was so obsessed with not breaking my fast that I wasn't ready for that kind of fast. And so at the heart of Lent is a repentance, a turning back to the Father, responding in preparation in our lives, a microcosm of our entire Christian life. The church has set aside this time for us to refocus, to respond and to prepare for the rest of our Christian life. And we get to do it every year. Lent is really a gift that the church has given to us to reflect what Jesus has done in the desert for us. To step back and say, I'm a sinner in need of Christ. In need of all that he has done, including in need of his resisting temptation for me. Because I may resist it sometimes, but I always succumb to some temptation. And we need Jesus. And Lent points us to that need. Always and forevermore. Let us pray.